Welcome to Great Minds with Michael Medved. Okay, if scientists do succeed in proving that we are totally alone in the universe, no other form of life anywhere else, does that prove the existence of God? A production of the Discovery Institute. On this episode... This is fascinating. How come we can't create cute little unicellular organisms? We can create these big, almost thinking, functioning, human-like machines. Why, why can't we create something alive? Life is more complicated than our most advanced computerized technology, although it contains elements that we recognize from our own advanced use of digital information processing systems and, and the like. Are we closer to being able to create life out of dead matter? Not really. That and more on this episode of Great Minds with Michael Medved. Here's Michael. Welcome to this edition of Great Minds with Michael Medved, which is very different from the daily radio show I do that's broadcast across the country. Because on that radio show, the whole idea is to focus on breaking news about what's happening right now that's important. And sometimes that news changes minute by minute, hour by hour. And you have to follow along with the flow of events. But on Great Minds with Michael Medved, thanks to our great friends and sponsors at Discovery Institute, we get the opportunity to spend some time discussing perennial, timeless, permanent, unchanging issues that go to the very core of our shared values and worldviews. Now, to do that with every show, I'm proud to introduce you to a particularly deep and original thinker. A great mind to help us explore great ideas. And my guest tonight is Stephen Meyer. Dr. Meyer is not only a good friend for many years now, he is also a Cambridge University trained philosopher of science. He's the director of Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and the author of Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligence Design and the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. Probably the best way to begin talking about the origins of life is to define life. What is life, Professor? That has turned out to be a notoriously difficult question by itself to answer. But uh, increasingly, biologists have a kind of uh, working definition that involves uh, a system of different components and molecules that exercise or exhibit some kind of purposive behavior. It's one of the first things we notice about living organisms is they seem to have, they have uh, a job to do. Whether it's the potato bugs or the ants or the little insects you notice as a kid, they're, they're exhibiting purposive behavior, they're systems, and they have some kind of a boundary with the environment that allows them to exchange materials across a boundary. They process information and they process energy. So those those kinds of ideas uh, get uh, raised when you talk about the, the definition of life. One of the most um, important <clears throat> aspects of that, we begin to think also about the origin of life, is that as there's a connection between our understanding of the nature of life and our understanding of the, the, the origin of life. When scientists thought that life was very simple, that it could be explained as the result of uh, a few chemical interactions making, in the 19th century, they, they thought uh, it was formed from a substance called protoplasm. And they, and they thought the protoplasm was made from a few simple chemical uh, substances. Then it was pretty easy to conceive how life might have originated. A few chemical reactions, and you've got the protoplasmic substance that constitutes life. But once they were able to peer inside the cell and realize the, how complex the metabolic processes were, the complex interactive chemistry that was going on, 
And then later, the discovery of things like DNA and RNA and proteins, which were information-carrying molecules, uh, the, the, the difficulty of explaining where life came from became very much more acute. Well, again, this is difficult right now. I mean, people are hearing us and uh, they're saying, isn't there a simpler way that a normal person could look at something and determine, is this life or is it inanimate matter? Pretty much everyone can tell whether something's alive or not. What, what do they look for? Um, I th there, there's a wonderful new book by uh, Scott Turner, a biologist at uh, NYU. Um, and he argues that what people see when they, when they see life is they see systems of obviously molecules and physical things that are, have a coherent structure, a coherent form that exhibits some kind of purposive behavior. But you say purpose of behavior, uh, inanimate matter doesn't exhibit behavior at all, does it? It exactly. has properties. It has properties. It, right. Right. Yeah. And so again, our, uh, when, and when you say purposive, uh, that doesn't necessarily imply consciousness because not all life is conscious, is it? Well, um, Turner argues that there's some kind of cognition even at the very lowest levels of life. But um, there's also this strange mystery associated with instinctive behavior. And that is that um, animals sometimes can, I mean, animals, plants, insects, uh, various creatures, even one-celled organisms, uh, can accomplish some sort of complex tasks. But as we've studied them, biologists have studied them, we've also realized that that their range of problem-solving ability usually uh, ends at the behaviors for which they have this kind of pre-programmed instinctive capacity. So you have uh, certain insects that have an ability to um, uh, lay eggs. They form very um, interesting, intricate structures where the eggs are formed. And look, oh, there's one that my colleague Ann Gager has been telling me about that has a, forms a kind of a mud ball. And the little insect lays eggs. Uh, and then at a certain time, very precisely programmed, it is able to perform a series of complex behaviors at just as the rains come, soften the egg ball, and they can get their way out. The, the, the entomologists who studied these, little, they were beetles, discovered that um, if he provided a way out that was much simpler, the insect was unable to do a, a simpler task. In other words, they couldn't problem solve, even very simply, which suggested that the, the, the pre-programmed um, instinct or that the instinct was pre-programmed and that the capacity to do that exceeded the capacity of the cognitive capability of the, of the little beetle itself. The little beetle brain could do what it was programmed to do, but nothing else. I know we're going to be talking in another uh, opportunity a, a little bit about the origins of the universe, but we now know scientists have uh, a consensus that there was such a thing as a Big Bang, that there was a beginning to the universe as we know it. We don't believe that life came into existence at the moment of the Big Bang. Exactly. The accepted date for the origin of life is about 3.85 billion years ago. The accepted date for the origin of the universe is about 10 billion years before that. So uh, the origin of life is a big question because it wasn't always here. And it, when, we, when we see just how complex living, even the simplest living cell is, um, Something quite extraordinary must have happened to explain its origin. Okay, so what? It's, it wasn't comparable to the Big Bang. By the way, do we think that the the earliest life forms are still with us? Uh, quite possibly some of them. There's uh, something called stromatolites, and they're one-celled kind of blue-green algae, and they form mats. And we have them today, and we have fossils of them from 3.85 billion years ago. So, wow. So some of the earliest one-celled organisms are probably still with us.
Okay, so the question of life's origins really does not connect directly with the always controversial theory of evolution. Right. Well, in a sense, there's two branches of evolutionary theory. Well, biological evolution is the branch of evolutionary theory that attempts to explain the origin of the first life, or, or the origin of complex forms of life, from simpler forms of life going back to the first life. Uh, chemical evolutionary theory attempts to explain the origin of the very first life from simpler non-living chemicals. So Darwin addressed the, the first question, how do we get from simple life to all the complex forms of life we see today? And chemical evolutionary theorists who roughly began formulating sophisticated theories in about the 1930s have attempted to explain that other more fundamental question, which is where did the first life come from, from simpler non-living chemicals. And what did Darwin say about that? Uh, well, he, he speculated in a, in a letter that um, to a friend named Joseph Hooker that perhaps we could conceive of a warm little pond in which there were all kinds of uh, phosphorus, uh, phosphates and chemicals and protein molecules. Um, but then in another place, he said of his own speculation that we'd be sooner to ask about the origin of matter itself. It simply exceeded our our scientific capacity in the 19th century to even speculate about where life first came from. So I remember when I was in a biology class in, um, in junior high school back in the Pleistocene era, um, <laughs> that uh, they used to tell us about the primordial soup. Right. Uh, they don't talk about primordial soup anymore, do they? It's still in all the textbooks, but that's the, that's the theory where, that's the chemical evolutionary theory, that life arose in some sort of favorable aqueous environment where the molecules interacted in just the right way to form. The initial idea was that they formed amino acids. Um, well, in Fantasia, they have a, there's a lightning bolt. <laughs> exactly. The, 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 the yeah. spark discharge chamber of Stanley Miller was sort of simulating that. But that 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 whole Stanley Miller stuff ended up being a fraud. Right? Well, not so much a fraud. It's just not relevant anymore because he presupposed atmospheric conditions that we know weren't present on the early Earth. So he was attempting to simulate how the first amino acids might have formed under plausible prebiotic conditions. But we now know the conditions weren't plausible. And the, the atmosphere at the time would have a quenching effect on the formation of amino acids. And so that's problem one. The deeper problem is that amino acids do not a protein make. And proteins are the complicated molecules and machines that do all the important jobs in cells. To build them, you've got to get amino acids arranged in very precise ways, like letters in the alphabet spelling words and sentences. And so even if you got amino acids, the deeper sequencing problem was never really addressed by Miller's experiment, and it remains a mystery today. Uh, where did the information come from to build those complex molecules that perform all the important jobs in cells? Well, th this is fascinating to me. How come we can't create cute little unicellular organisms? I mean, if we can create these big, moving, almost thinking, functioning, human-like machines, why, why can't we create something alive? Life is more complicated than our most uh, advanced uh, computer computerized technology, although it contains elements that we recognize from our own advanced uh, use of digital information processing systems and, and, and the like. Are we closer to being able to create life out of dead matter? Not really. Uh, we understand more about the necessary conditions of making life, but we haven't uh, come close to understanding what the complete set of sufficient conditions would be. Um, when, when we have an interesting thing that goes on here in the Pacific Northwest where we, we use, we've got great companies, Microsoft, Boeing. Microsoft creates information and sells it. We know that information is a real thing. 
Um, Boeing uses information to direct to direct the construction of mechanical systems like airplane wings. So there's a technology called computer-assisted design and manufacturing. Um, engineer will sit at a console, will write some code. The code will go down a wire. It will be translated into a machine code that can direct the construction of a mechanical system like an airplane wing. The code may put the rivets on the airplane wing in just the right place. We now know that a system very much like that lies at the heart of all of li- of every living organism. How do we know that? Well, it starts back with Watson Crick, 1953. They elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule. It's a fascinating story. I tell the story of the discovery itself in, in Signature in the Cell. It's just a great breakthrough in the history of science. And, and by the way, the book is a breakthrough in the thinking of anyone who chooses to read it and encounter it. It's it's one of the more important books of the recent decades, but go oh, ahead. Well, thank you. In in any case, they it's a... It's a a great story of scientific competition, different groups trying to figure out the ultimate mystery of where is the information that is responsible for the transmission of hereditary traits. And they elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule. That's 1953. Four years later, Francis Crick, who was a code breaker in World War II, that's his job. He doesn't have a PhD in biology. He's a grad student in physics who's working with his young 23-year-old a chemistry PhD from the United States, James Watson. Crick on his own realizes that the, the, the uh, subunits of the DNA molecule that are called nucleotide bases, they run on the interior of the double helix. He realizes that they're functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or the, the zeros and ones that we'd use in software today, which is to say it's the, the, these subunits called nucleotides are, they perform a function biologically not in virtue of their atomic weight or their, uh, their, their shape or their structure, but in virtue of their arrangement in accord with an independent code, which is later discovered. And it takes molecular biologists about seven or eight years to elucidate what they call the gene expression system, how the information in DNA directs the construction of these crucially important protein molecules very similar to the CAD-CAM systems that engineers use today. We write code, we use the code to build a mechanical system. That's what's going on inside cells, says, says Crick. Turns out he's right. And this is a major breakthrough, and, uh, and it's a completely revolutionized our understanding of biology because we now know at the foundation of life is information in a digitally encoded form or an alphabetic form, or some, some scientists have talked about a typographic form of information. But there, So this is a stop-press moment in the history of biology. No one had any inkling what was running the show was literally code, was, was digital code. And so our local heroes here in, in Seattle, Redmond, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Leor Hood, said DNA contains digital code, says Hood. Gates says it's like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. So that's the big mystery. If you want to explain the origin of life, you've got to explain the origin of the information that makes life possible. So if we get good enough at writing code? Well, it turns out that uh, there are layers upon layers of complexity with living systems. And this is where it gets really... We know that the information in DNA is necessary to build proteins. But having proteins alone, even with all the other components, is not sufficient to produce a cell. And so there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of times people from the popular press get the idea that uh, we've simulated or we've, we've, built, we've built artificial life or something. We're, we're not even close on that. Okay, you talk about this enormous complexity, and, and and reading Signature in the Cell, it's it is mind-boggling. Is there any comparable complexity anywhere in inanimate matter? 
in in rocks uh, or or liquids or anything else. Only in things that human beings have designed, and the most the closest analog is our own high tech digital information processing systems. In other words, how would you compare, uh, say, a, a very nice piece of rock, say a gold nugget? We all like gold nuggets. The complexity in that substance, as opposed to this, uh, these. A three point eight billion year old organisms you're talking about. Yeah, maybe if I could slightly alter your question, it will provide me an opportunity with a slightly more illuminating answer. Because Good. one of the, one of the things we we chemists recognize is the repetitive structure of crystals, and that's a kind of order that we find typically in inanimate matter. You know, uh, sodium chloride salt has the beautiful uh, repetitive s- uh, structure that is the result of the Na and the Ca, the, the or Na and the Cl, combining you have the positive charge and the minus charge, and so you get a nice repetitive structure. Um, in life, there is order, but it's a different kind of order. It's not re- simple repetitive order. It's what what we sometimes call sequence specificity or complex or, or sequence uh, uh, or, or, or a specified complexity. It's the kind of order we find in language. Or in in computer code, where there's a sequence, where where the sequential arrangement of the subunits or characters is um, crucially important to the function that the whole system plays, and so there's a it's a kind of order, but it's not repetitive order. It's the kind of order we find in information. And this is the essence of what is meant by intelligent design: is the idea um, that. This is code. It had to have been written. It had to have been created by some with some kind of purpose to it. The, one of the hallmarks of science is prediction, being able to predict things based upon your scientific conclusions. What predictions would the theory of intelligent design lead to? Well, it's led to a number of predictions, but even prior to that, and more importantly, it's provided the first a plausible explanation for the origin of the information in DNA that's necessary to build the first life. Um, Darwin used a different method of scientific reasoning. He pioneered a method of historical science that allowed us to reconstruct the causes of events in the remote past. So that historical scientific reasoning is more concerned with explanation after the fact than it is with prediction before it. And uh, so this was a method that Darwin used, and he had a, a an important criterion for determining when um, a, a posited explanation was best, and that is that the the, po- the the explanation posited must must offer a cause which is known to produce the effect in question. And when I came across this crucial methodology that Darwin developed, I ended up asking myself a question, and that is, what is the cause that we know of that produces digital code, digital information? In other words, from our uniform and repeated experience, the basis of all scientific reasoning, especially about the past, what do we know about what, what it is that produces information? And the answer is that it, it, a mi- only minds do that. And in my book, I look at all the other attempted materialistic explanations, those based on chance, those based on natural laws, those based on a combination of the two, and all of them have come up against this impasse. They can't explain the origin of information, but there is a cause of which we know that does that, and that cause is mind. It's, in, it's intelligence. And so the basis of the inference to design is actually our, our knowledge, our uniform and repeated experience of cause and effect in the world around us. We know that minds generate code and information. And so when we find it at the, at the very basis of life, we argue, I argue, that we have come across a very powerful indicator of the activity of a designing intelligence in the history of life or in the origin of the first life. It, 
also happens that there are predictions that follow from intelligent design. For example, we were some of the first people to predict that the, the so-called junk DNA would turn out not to be junk, but importantly functional. And in the back of Signature in the Cell, I list 10 such predictions, and many more have been generated. But the most important thing that the theory of intelligent design does is provide the first adequate causal explanation of the origin of the information necessary to build life in the first place. All fascinating and all enormously important. Thank you for being here today, Steve. The origin of life is one of those great mysteries, and that's been the whole theme of what we're talking about. And you can find more light on this subject uh, from most scientists and scholars uh, and putting their work in perspective uh, by taking a look at some of the information that Steve has put forward in his important book, Signature in the Cell. Uh, that information about that book and information about these broadcasts is all available at our website, our internet home, which is mindswithmedved.com. You should check out mindswithmedved.com. And an important thing you can do while you're there is to donate to help support this kind of great, important programming. It doesn't happen by accident. It requires intelligent design <laughs> and uh, donations. Listeners can also subscribe via iTunes as well. Thank you for doing so in advance, and thank you to all of our friends at Discovery Institute for producing this show. Thanks for listening to Great Minds with Michael Medved. Available at mindswithmedved.com. Great Minds with Michael Medved is produced by Jeremy Steiner and Greg Tomlin and is copyrighted by Discovery Institute 2018.